what's the purpose of understanding God as he's described in the Book of Mormon, and what does that do to me for understanding him that way to allow me to be saved in his kingdom, to be changed? Does it bring me into greater fellowship with him? Does it allow me to see him in his majesty in a greater way? Does it just allow me to worship him more in truth, knowing what he did for me? But there has to be a reason he was explained so clearly, and there has to be a reason that men were willing to die for stating those things. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're up before a crowd and they all got guns at you and they're, you know, you're going to, and so let me speak first and I'm going to tell you something. And that's what you choose to tell them, knowing that that's going to be the end of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It must be pretty important. Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. So uh, I was thinking about, so we had a question posed to us recently. Well, we were talking with a friend, and he had brought up that he had had a question about um, eternal, well, why did um, Adam fell and... Because the Book of Mormon says Adam fell that men men might be and men are that they might have joy and so I think the question was posed so why did mankind basically come out of sin or why did God create sin um or did He know from the beginning that so my plan is for men to have joy but it's going to have to come because man sins first so I was thinking about that question and, and not the um, theology behind it so much as. When we ask questions, what's the purpose of the question, and and how does it pertain to salvation? So I was thinking, I don't know the I don't know what the context that that question. I've heard it before, but when we ask a question like that, what do you think the what do you think the feeling is behind that question? Is it you know how, is it a matter of trust with God because mm-hmm. He chose. He chose to have everything good come from everything bad, kind of, or is it is it just the meanderings of our mind, or is it uh, is it an important question even? Yeah, because at at some point you don't want to be like you know some religions where well you'll just have to be in, enlightened to get to a certain point. You can't understand these right. things now, and and there's just things we do that aren't that aren't understood by the common mind. I don't like to take that route, but on the other hand, I think I, I can't understand like eternity or what it means, how God always was eternal, how the, you know, the things that he formed creation into were eternal and he ordered them into creation. At some point, your mind just has to, it's just like, I can't, I, I can't understand these things. Mm-hmm. But is it good to ponder on, on that and what part of that question do you ponder on and what's healthy and what's helpful for me living today and how does it affect my salvation and, and my testimony of Jesus, really, as I try to bring him to others? And is there value in in that question or, or going down that line of thinking? What do you think? Well, you know, we were talking with someone last night and I was, we, we had that similar question come up and, you know, 
sometimes I think it's okay to say, you know, there are good questions to ask that scriptures may not answer. Um, we aren't going to find some of these answers within ourselves. When Job, when Job is confronted by all of his problems and he doesn't complain about them so much as just wonder why they all happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his friends chastise him for chapters of the story, but then in the end, God answers and God says interesting things in that exchange about, Hey, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And, and kind of like, you know, God doesn't have to answer to us, I guess. And one of the questions I guess we were talking about was that very thing about, you know, how, how is it, was, was God planning on a sinning, you know? And that's, that's something that I think the scriptures are silent on, but I, I say that cautiously because as we all know, sometimes questions we have aren't answered immediately because we haven't studied the scriptures long enough, hard enough, deep enough, or compared enough scripture. And then once, once we do, we find there are answers. And I, I guess I turn to this idea of the opposition in all things being a big answer the Book of Mormon provides. It doesn't answer every question, but for instance, you know, when God says, Hey, I create good and I create evil, you know, that's not a scripture. Many of us in the restoration used to, as a call to worship, you know, I, this is God and I create evil, you know. But, I always, <clears throat> I'm curious on that. Does, does that, is that the exact wording that it says? I create evil? Well, since I have a computer with me today, <laughs> last time we didn't. About time, man. Uh, yeah, really. We've been like third notch been wing, podcast just about w- it. winging it for a while. And, you know, I, I actually like the winging it better. But I um, read one day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, um, it's interesting because it does use that that language. I'm going to bring it up. Um, it doesn't really matter if it's inspired or King James. I think in that case, but in Isaiah, uh, it's it's one that causes people to to ponder a little bit. And I'll I'll read it. Uh, yeah, I want to read it. <clears throat> I want to read it in context. But but it says it in the Book of Mormon too. Which what I was about to say is it's the difference between the Hebrew mindset and the our English Western mindset because. We've been brought up to to believe, and, and I'm. This isn't to suggest at all that God somehow is evil or entices to evil. The scriptures are are clear that He doesn't entice us to evil. Satan does, but the fact is that good and evil exist. You know, God says I, I created all these things. the The point is getting back to the truth of the Book of Mormon when it says there's an opposition in all things, and we're kind of in the middle. That is so that righteousness can occur, and the righteousness being that with being created in God's image isn't just that we have fingers and toes like him, but it has more to do with being created with his um, capabilities. His ability to dream and create and think has been extended to us. And so in this universe he's created where options exist, the whole point is that with our will, with all these options to do good or to do evil, what will we allow our will to be enticed by? And well, that- I, I'm going to take the position that, um, well, okay, so Isaiah does say, and create evil. Darn it. Yeah. I don't so see that in the read, book of Read the verse. Read the verse. You got it? I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Yeah. And now, one of these things we can always go back to say, well, was the word <clears throat> evil really Hebrew? Now, you, what you just read sounds to me like a great parallelism of, you know, the heavens and the earth and the and the good and the bad and all that. You know, we, we think of evil as only Satan in this. 
I, I think the Book of Mormon, again, puts it all in perspective that uh, God entices to do good, Satan entices to do evil, but the options out there are are kind of generic or maybe even eternal in the sense that there's light and darkness and we have to choose the light. I get that part, but I, I, I'm going to take the position that God didn't form evil, that God created beings with choice and gave them a set of ways to live. And when they rebel from those ways, that evil is created in that sense by God. But that God never knowing darkness or never knowing sin, and I know I'm speaking of things way beyond my my level, but I'm just curious that there's that one scripture. I can't find a scripture about create evil in the um, Book of Mormon. Maybe you can find one. Yeah, you're faster than I am today. Um, there's... <clears throat> Well, again, in the, the Hebrew writers, Hebrew people who wrote this, it seems from their culture we get um, the idea that they saw they saw the balance. Like when in the Book of Mormon it was blamed that Joseph Smith used bad grammar because he said, I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them is. And then other people right. said, well, that has to be are because that's how you say it in English. Well, in the Hebrew, all things is was the way it should have been translated because they saw the heavens and the earth as one, you know, mm-hmm. one unit. And and they looked at good and bad as, as one unit too. And so, again, I'm not, I, th- I think it's true that God created everything that's out there. But again, this realm is just a shadow uh, of what the real life that God has for us is. And who knows what that's like, you know, if there's still evil in a, in a back room, in a closet, we just don't open that door at some point. Um, the Book of Mormon also says, describing this kingdom to come. It says, because of the righteousness of the saints, Satan has no power. And that's an interesting thing that to me comes back to the will in that, you know, all the all the bad internet sites of the world can be out there just a mouse click away, but you don't have to click on them, right? And that's kind of like, I think in this life that it's it's everything's there. Now, I'm not saying God created bad internet sites. I'm just saying that as far as choices, our whole predicament of humanity being cast out of God's presence came about because of the expression of the will against God, right? Yeah, that's and that's what that's what I think is eternal is that you know that's that's the part of it. That was I mean, I've, what I read, and this is probably a man's opinion, or is that from that language, like God brings disaster, or God creates hardships on people that disobey Him, but as far as a moral evil. That, that that was a context of Isaiah, um, but not that like God created this demon up in heaven that was going to fall so that we could all be opposed to him. Because it says Satan was a, a light of the morning, a, a shining star, a morning star, and yeah. that he fell. So I'm not I'm not when that discussion comes up, I don't I don't hold to or I'm not convinced that God created evil as we know it as yeah. like a like a uh nature to sin or a i believe that he gave an opposition in the garden and that's really the only history we have he, the book of mormon says that right he set the the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden yeah and that's and all this is shared by lehi to son jacob which is where this opposition in all things is and in that same context uh, lehi says there's a god and this is first uh, nephi or second nephi chapter 1 uh, verse 95, there is a God and he hath created all things, both the heavens and the earth and all things that in them is 
both things to act and things to be acted upon. So choices and consequences, mm -hmm. right? And to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, after that he created our first parents and the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air. And in fine, all things which are created, it must needs be there is an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life. I bring that up because it's like, no, God placed that forbidden fruit tree in the garden. Right. You know, he he placed the option there. And, and in that context, someone could say, well, you know, and, and the Book of Mormon's what's calling it forbidden. The, the fact is, I think he creates options out there that we can choose because they appeal to the flesh. That's now that's where that's what makes sense to me. He he gave our first parents a choice and he set before them uh, a choice that that he gave them a commandment not to do. Right. And from that, I think, is the whole philosophy of men and the purpose of creation is that we are to experience what happens and how bad things are when you take one step away from God's perfect will yeah. and the cascade that comes from that. Yeah. And, and hopefully that through this experience in the flesh and with choices and consequences that we are, that we're molded and, and, and brought into submission again and, and choose to choose his perfect way because we don't like the, the uh, flip side of that. We don't like to experience what happens when we think we know best. And look at the world. I mean, the world's full of people who think they know best, but they're, yeah. they're guided by their own greed and lusts and, and pleasures of the flesh, whether they admit it or not. And, um, and that's not the world. I, I don't want to live in this place for eternity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nothing. So I guess when I think of God creating evil, I, I see it as God set up an opposition in the beginning in order for men to choose. And then you get into what probably what's coming up, I guess, this Sunday in Sunday school is the, the predestination. And it's like, well, if God knew men was going to fall in the beginning, you know, do any of us. And I, that's never been a problem for me. I, I see God as an eternal being who's already either with me and the celestial kingdom for eternity, or he sees that I'm in the prison house or the lake of fire for eternity. But yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do. He knows, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that I don't have the will to do it. Just because you know the outcome of a movie, if you're sitting watching it with people that haven't seen it yet, it doesn't lessen the joy for them for uh, seeing yeah. the movie. Yeah, that's that's a probably a pathetic analogy for eternity, but that's how I view it. It's yeah. just because God knows what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe he knows I'm going to make all the right choices and in the end, and, and he'll rejoice with me. You know, we talked about this concept that's popular in the evangelical Christian circles about um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ and you'll be saved. You know, that's from Romans. And, and we've looked at how that was really taken out of context. And even moreover, that if you look at it in context, you see there was this parallel being compared between confessing the old law, the Torah versus confessing Christ. And it all came back to Deuteronomy. There was like the, the original scriptures being quoted were in Deuteronomy. And then when you compare them to Romans, you know, nine and 10, you see this, Oh, okay. That's what they were talking about. Well, the, the whole point is that, so then Christians and theologians create this huge, dogma and doctrine in our day, arguing about confessing with your mouth when that wasn't the point of the scripture, right? And that's like, it was our contrived 
point of it. And so right. the reason I share this is because I think the same is 100% true of predestination. This idea of predestination exists because people don't understand the original Hebrew and they don't understand the context. And even moreover, they're reading the New Testament without the Old Testament. This morning before I came over, it just hit me that you you cannot read the New Testament without reading the Old Testament. And most Christians, that's the only thing they go to. It's like, oh, I don't understand the Old Testament. But the New Testament is the result of the Old Testament. And in every case, it's kind of like John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Yeah, people know that scripture, but John three fourteen and 15 put it in context to the Old Testament, which is the story of Moses lifting up the serpent on the pole that whoever would look to it would be saved. And he said, for the same reason, God's lifting me up. And this is Jesus speaking. And I'm going to be the one that if you look to me, you'll be saved. So this comparison that he's making is totally lost unless we understand the Old Testament. To point out this predestination thing, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is just to say this. This idea of predestination is a misunderstanding of words in the New Testament that refer to uh, the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God's telling the people of Israel, I have put my hand on you and I've chosen you not because you are greatest in number, not because you are righteous, not because of all these things he said, but I, I determined to fulfill the covenant I made with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by that, he says, I've chosen you. And that word chosen is the same. It's later used as, as elect and election. And these, the, the elect that the new Testament talks about and was, was three things. It was one, these covenant, literal covenant descendants of Israel. And we lose that if we don't read the Old Testament. And it's talking about not that in the New Testament, it gets twisted to think, oh, the elect are only the ones that God chose to save. No, the elect in that context of the Old Testament meant this was house of Israel people who God had a plan to fulfill covenants through because of the forefathers, but the promises are to everyone in the world. See, it gets, gets twisted where it's somehow connected with salvation. Like, oh, God only elects to save some. No, that's not what it means. God elected to fulfill covenants through the house of Israel, but his salvation is freely offered to all. And that's the beautiful message of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, the Book of Mormon shares that more clearly, doesn't it? That yeah, yeah. It's a privilege for all men to know Jesus. Well, it says, uh, you know, for instance, the gate of heaven is open to all who will call on his name. And this um, the Sunday, I'm looking forward to it because uh, we get to bring these scriptures into context and compare it to this false notion of predestination. The Book of Mormon clearly teaches that salvation is offered to anyone who will call on the name of Jesus in sincerity of heart. And that's the truth. And it's not that, oh, well, God only picked a few people and he wants to send everyone else to hell. It's He, he might know how the outcome's going to be. Of course, we don't doubt that. But the ability for us to come to him was not predetermined. And that's what the people who choose predestination, the, these Calvinists, believe. That mm -hmm. God has already decided if you're going to be saved or not. And then they act like it's this solemn uh, thing that we need to be so happy about. And so it's a misunderstanding. Yeah, that's uh, comes out of, uh, well, they, they think that, you can't even come to God unless enticed by him. But that's that's part of the plan as well, I think. You know, but they just take that uh, scripture and really add a lot into their whole theology, one scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, coming back to Lehi's words in the Book of Mormon, after he talks about this, that God even created the forbidden fruit in the opposition to the tree of life, one sweet, one bitter, 
verse 99 says, The Lord gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore, man could not act for himself, save it should be that he were enticed by the one or the other. And, and that comes back to, again, this whole idea of that the opposition in all things exists, so we can be enticed by one or the other. But to use our character of God that he's placed within our soul, it means we can make a decision and choose, you know, that, that we're going to choose one or the other. Um, and then, then he, Lehi continues and he says, I, Lehi, according to the things which I've read, must need suppose that an angel of God, according to that which is written, had fallen from heaven, and he became a devil and sought that which was evil before God. And because he had fallen from heaven and become miserable, he sought the misery of all mankind. And so then he talks about how Eve was enticed. But the Book of Mormon later calls, um, if you just word search the word author, you find that it calls Satan the author of sin. Mm-hmm. And I... You don't get this from, um, again, I, I think it's, it doesn't mean that evil didn't, or, or the ability to choose wrong started with Satan because it sounds like Satan had an agency too, right? And he chose to rebel. I think that that choice is an eternal thing. Somehow we learn to overcome that. And this is why this life is that probation. But um, who knows? We're speculating on eternity, what it's going to be like in a new heaven and a new earth. You know, I don't know if these, uh, rules all change if everything's different. But for now, we know that there there are enticements and that Satan entices to do evil and God entices to do good. In fact, that's I think that's a good word to search. I'm going to look it up real quick. Well, that's the, um, as far as a choice for Adam and Eve, there was, that wasn't the first fall. The first fall was, was Satan from the heavenly realm. That we know of, right. That yeah. we, that we, have recorded or know about. So, uh, whatever happens in the spiritual realm, yeah, he, he must've been able to be enticed by something, whether for God to give us freedom to choose, then, then there has to be that choice. That's, it's not choose me or choose me. It's choose me or choose not me. Mm-hmm. So that, that seems like logically from our understanding, that choice had to be from the beginning as well. So, Satan, I mean, to have agency, which we we hold up as this great thing that we talk about in the inspired version of Genesis, I gave unto man agency. That agency has to come with the proposal that there is a way that is not of me that you are free to choose. And with, uh, without yeah. that, you really don't have agency. Yeah. Yeah. King Benjamin shares if, in Mosiah chapter 1, about verse 120, about the natural man, it says, if he yieldeth to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting because that implies that the Holy Spirit is enticing. It's already there present. Uh, but if he yields to the enticing of the Holy Spirit, puts off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child, meek and submissive and humble and patient, willing to submit to all things the Lord sees to inflict. Then, then he says, if he um, yields to that spirit of the Holy Ghost, uh, he says that um, then we'll f- be found blameless before him. In other words, our sin is removed. So it's like th- the point is we either we're going to be, be blameless or not, but in that we have to be enticed by the Holy Spirit. But to compare that, just jumping into the end of the Book of Mormon, uh, Moroni says uh, all things, which this is Moroni chapter 7, verse 10, all things which are good cometh of God. That sounds like a principle, you know, it's, but, and, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. Now, 
you know, again, I think the options were there, but I think where he's talking about the things that are good, the things that entice us to do good, that's God enticing us to do good, um, that which is coming of the devil isn't from his enticing. But he continues, for the devil is an enemy unto God and fighteth against him continually and inviteth and enticeth to sin and to do that which is evil continually. So Satan's enticing us to do evil. The Holy Ghost is enticing us to do good. And then he simply says, but behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. You know, so I read that and think, okay, it's here, it's the opposition in all things. We're in the middle and we have these enticements. And which one are we going to go to? You know? Yeah. Well, I know it's something we've talked about before, but I, I was thinking this morning of the, not so much the answer to that question of, you know, did, did God know from the beginning was his plan for man to sin and that we all have joy because we had to sin first? I, I was thinking more of the nature behind that question and why is it, is it important to understand that? Does it change our relationship with him? Does it help us to understand him better? I don't know. Does it mm. bring us into closer relationship with Jesus? Um, it, it seems like, <clears throat> it seems like it did, but it wasn't forced on us. You know, I, I wonder too, and this is where I, I don't know that the scriptures provide clarity. It might be there and we just don't see it, but, was it that God, you know, his his final plan, his maybe it, you know, we don't know what we were really like in the beginning. If we had full knowledge and authority, we we believe that our spirits have been eternal as well, in a sense. But we got placed in this physical world away from God, and somehow through making choices, we can be reconciled back to Him. If those choices are according to the Scripture, choosing Him changing our will. But was it that God was just waiting around for us to sin so that this whole plan could be put in place? You know, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a deep question, but you know, you started off by asking, should we be asking these questions? And I'm like, I think God wants to answer. Oh no, I don't. You know, I mean, if no, I said that, yeah, I, didn't, I, know you didn't, I know you didn't mean it that way. I don't know if I, if I said that, that was, I was, I think, well, what was on my mind was what is the purpose of these questions and from what, um, from where in our spirit or where in our heart do the questions come from? Um, and what's the purpose of understanding, you know, what understanding does God want us to have about Adam sinning and Adam falling and, you know, men being. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess you can, you know, we spend a lot of time debating a lot of things for fun, but, um, I'm always want, trying to think, you know, what's the purpose of me asking this and what's the benefit of seeking and what does it do for my inner person as far as changing into his image? You know, what does he want me to know about that? Yeah, no, I like that. And, you know, you've challenged me uh, more than once in that regard when, when I've talked about things that are on my mind or things that I want to share in a class. And I, even just recently, I think you came back and kind of put me on my heels for a second because you said, well, what's the purpose of sharing that? And I'm like, I couldn't figure it out if you were just being devil's advocate or if you really wanted to know, but you're right. Sometimes when you have a question and deep pondering, mm -hmm. you know, you, you do have to come back to 
okay, well, how does it change me if I know that answer or not? Well, and, that's, and, and not to get stuck on it if you don't know <clears throat> the answer. That's an important one because, well, uh, and that was in relation, and this is a this is a place to talk about that, I think. This is a great uh, place where we can share freely and, and just our own thoughts. Because um, no one's listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, well, you were talking about the important aspect of the Book of Mormon sharing that God himself, those words, God himself, and what that is hooked to in the Book of Mormon, God himself shall come down and take on flesh and blood and shall atone for our sins. And you've often said this is the most important message of the Book of Mormon. And so my question is, I I agree with you, that's an important message of the Book of Mormon, and it's very clear there. And I, I know that people have, in our religion, have debated whether God is three separate entities or one entity in three forms or that, you know, Jesus is a separate conscious being. And we've talked about this before. It's it's curious when you see anger flare up the triggering points. And this is one of those triggering points where people are willing to just hammer at their brothers and sisters for not seeing things their way when it comes to the, quote, Godhead and and so you wonder why the anger, why, what, what is stirring up their spirit so vehemently mm-hmm. about exploring that? And as you said, you can argue with many things, but you can't argue with the Book of Mormon. Like it's very hard to have a doctrinal discussion over who God is when you read the entirety of the Book of Mormon and how it explains God. Yeah, well, and so the. Because I believe, like if we go back to it again and again, that the Book of Mormon is the plain and precious truth meant for our generation, written in a way that we can relate to God in English without the Hebrew culture, right? Written by a group of people that were always believers in Christ from the Old Testament, all, you know, 2,000 years before him to hundreds of years after him. It's all about Christ in a very plain language. And that's why we can rely on the Book of Mormon as a saving word of God to us and how we interact with him today. So when the when the picture of who God is is so clear in the Book of Mormon, we can fight over that. We can try to debate it. We can we can bring in what we want, but it's like the words are there that are plain. You know, either your heart wants to respond to that plainness and just take it for what it is, or you can take all these other notions that have entered in through years and that's that's our choice. But you can't really. I mean, I don't. Is there a plainer? Is there a plainer way for God to record who He is to us? Yeah. God Himself shall take on flesh and blood, yeah. and shall come down and atone for our sins. That's. Uh, you can read more or less into that, but if you take that for what it is, and that's just one scripture, but there's so many more, right, describing the nature of God. So then the question is. What's the purpose of understanding God as he's described in the Book of Mormon? And what does that do to me for understanding him that way to allow me to be saved in his kingdom, to be changed? Does it bring me into greater fellowship with him? Does it allow me to see him in his majesty in a greater way? Does it just allow me to worship him more in truth, knowing what he did for me. But there has to be a reason he was explained so clearly. And there has to be a reason that men were willing to die for stating those things. Wow. I mean, 
if you're you know if you're up before a crowd and they all got guns at you and they're you know you're gonna and so let me speak first and I'm gonna tell you something and that's what you choose to tell them knowing that that's gonna be the end of your life yeah yeah it must be pretty important yeah yeah boy I love what you just said I just wanna I want to hear what you just said again I mean <laughs> no he summed it up so that's it's to me it's not a debate on it's so funny when things of the spirit, not funny, but it is, it's just like, why do certain things of importance, seeming importance, cause such anger? And why does so much pride enter in? Especially when we talk about, we're talking about, I mean, go watch an ant run around on the ground and pick up a petal leaf and think about the science behind that that allows us to breathe. And then go into all the stars and the galaxies and we think of this creator and then and then we come to the table and try to uh, hash out and get angry with each other because, darn it, I know the nature of this being, and don't, <laughs> don't, don't you try to tell me different. Exactly. One yeah. way or the other, man, knowing that, <laughs> knowing that the very God Himself put on flesh and blood and came down here and allowed us to kill Him ought to cause humility within us. See, not, not wanting to kill each other with our words, discussing who that person was that did that. And we're just so stupid. Yeah. I don't know a better word for it. It's just, it's, it's foolish, man. It makes me, I mean, we're one of those little ants crawling around thinking we know everything about the world. And all we really know is we go into a hole and we go find food. And Exactly. It's, our, our minds are not. And yet he loves us so much that he gave us this very plain book and we want to um, twist those words. You know, what you just said, Mike, it's like, uh, yeah, exactly. I, um, the, the reason is what you said, though, the, the reason why this is important, especially for the restoration, is because we've been brought up on this confusing notion that our salvation is based more about our merits and our our works. And, oh, if we do this and this and this, you get a little higher reward. You know, some of you mm-hmm. get to go to the top, but a lot of you in the middle, try your best. And it takes out the need for a Savior. And that's a problem in and of itself. That is. But but this, this idea then that the Book of Mormon presents that, hey, God wasn't <laughs> quoting the Je- Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus was a deity, you know, kind of like on part of the First Presidency. The Book of Mormon says, no, Jesus was God in the flesh. And and the point is, it brings the necessary humility to realize that it has not, my works are filthiness. The only thing my works can do is prove that my heart changed. The point being, the very creator became the sacrifice that was the only way where my sin could be removed. That to me causes me to want to come to my knees and thank him. And it's like the rest of our false notions and oral traditions have been making me just kind of run around like I've got a compulsive disorder about, oh, I got to do this better, do this better, do this better. And take communion again this month. And hopefully I'm forgiven and hopefully I can do better this month. And it's like, yeah, all those are necessary qualities of wanting to improve on this time here, but it always takes out the need for the savior. And this, this, I think, brings it into total perspective that not only do you need a Savior, but the Savior was the creator. And, and, and you know, I just wanted to add one other thing to that and something you said last night. It's like, this is the important message that we were given with clarity. The Book of Mormon given to relatively few people in this world 
was not something that we could just put on the shelf and say, oh, well, we're the restoration. Let me tell you all about the restoration. Well, the restoration isn't sure if there's one God or three gods. The restoration isn't really sure we can tell you about salvation because that could be anything at all. And it's like we've supplanted our own confusing notions that have come from people like Brigham Young and others. And we've taken this clear message, this plain message, and we've put it on the shelf. And it's like, no, let all the other churches have their great, huge chapels and buildings and, and, and all these great outreach things they're involved in. But we were the ones who were given to hold up this word and to share it, this word that came, restored, and it's the Book of Mormon. That was our number one commission. And and so we've taken that message and we've just shared our own thoughts instead. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, the truth is right here. I just wrote down like six things we got to go through that brought to mind from our conversation last night. This will take us easily through the rest. So as you talk, let's talk about these things. As you were, you just reminded me of things we've talked about in the last two days. Number one, the the other day I'm pulling out of the driveway. I look over, and, and Weston's truck's always parked at the end of our driveway. So as I pull out, my, my car angles by the side of his truck, and I start to take off. And I do a double take. I stop. I back up. There is a <laughs> a scrape down the entire side of his truck on the driver's side oh. and dented in. Like oh, my no. first thought was I flashed back to the office episode where like Michael <laughs> Scott hit Meredith in the parking lot. And, <laughs> and Jim goes, you know, Michael rode over a speed bump the other day when we were out on a visit. I wonder what he hit there. <laughs> and I just thought, is there somebody laying somewhere yeah, that did he sideswipe no. a car or someone walking on it? So anyway, I asked him later that night, I said, what'd you do to the side of your truck? Well, he was at work and his truck was parked there and he was moving a piece of equipment he thought he could fit. He didn't want to hit the, his boss's truck, so he ended up swiping his truck. But he just kept going through the whole thing. Oh, no. He never told us about it. And I thought, that's the not that he was hiding it from us. He just didn't want to bring it to our attention. So it was like happened like three days before I discovered it. <laughs> okay. We went to him and said, why didn't you tell us about it? Well, he was embarrassed. He didn't want to get in trouble. He didn't know how we'd react. To me, that's a simple um, example of, I think, how we are when we understand God in a certain way and when we sin, that I think Satan puts that spirit of, you need to go hide. You need to run away. You need to not bring this to the Father. You're terrible. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get punished. You don't know how he's going to react. You don't know the consequences. And so we just kind of bury that within us and go about our business. Mm. And that's, I think that's born out of the notion that I have a list of do's and don'ts and they add up during the month or during the years. And um, every time I sin, God's angry with me and I need to either hide that sin or deal with it. And it's Uh just easier to hide it. And so I spend most of my time in life running from God, knowing that I'm not measuring up. (laughs) And so we were coming home from from, uh, church last week. And we were discussing the sermon, and Kristen preached the gospel to me in such a simple way. I I won't do her justice, but she's like, I just feel like, you know, every day I try to do my best. I try to be good to people. I try to be kind. And some days I have a lot of energy to do that. Some days I don't. Sometimes I measure up. Sometimes I don't. But as long as I'm trying to do my best, I just trust Jesus is going to make up for the rest. Mm. As long as that's my desire. I'm like, that was the the gospel. It was so much. It was so elegant and yet simple. And I thought, so then I started, I said, well, so you do your best every day? She goes, I try to. I said, so if you go home from church and watch TV all afternoon when you could have been engaged in reading about the things of heaven and God or Or listening to our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I said, is that. I said, is that, was that your best? Did you do your best yesterday? She's like, 
well, maybe I was was doing my best for that day. Maybe I had, maybe that was all the energy I had to do. And so we started talking about, you know, I said, isn't every day, couldn't you have been a little bit better? And we got down to it and was like, you know, probably, but that's also my human nature is that I'm not able to be the best me every single day. Mm-hmm. Some days I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just at, you know, 25% of my charity for other people. The rest is washed out. Yeah. And, but, but you're not waking up thinking, I hate people. And I can't wait. No, that doesn't happen until like one, like, 1 p.m. when yeah, I'm driven in traffic yeah. for four hours. No, <laughs> no, my first three hours are really good every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's about three o'clock trying to get home and people are cutting you off. And I'm like, I hate this place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> t- that's why I have a fear of going out every day. It's like every day is the first day of kindergarten because I just feel so pristine in the morning and ready to go. And, and by the end of the day, I know that I'm just going to be jerked around by this world. And you know, it's this way it is till I die, I guess. But yeah. that being said, so Kristen, we were talking about the simpleness of the gospel and that uh, when you look at sin in our nature in a different way of, of other than a balance of how many bads versus how many goods and where I'm at in relationship to God, but just keep your eyes on him. Uh, we had a sermon that was talking about a, a scripture that I, one of the few scriptures I've memorized when I was a boy, because brother John, the singing group wrote a song about it, the everlasting covenant. Mm. So we all, I grew up knowing this scripture, you know, that when men should keep all my commandments, Zion should again come on the earth, a city of Enoch, which I've caught up into myself. Um, That's been a rally cry, I think, for us or for me growing up that I knew that if I could just, that if we could just as a people keep all the the commandments of God, Zion would again come on the earth. And that was one of the main messages uh, preached recently and that I've heard preached over the years that we know that if we keep all the commandments, Zion will come. Mm. And I don't, I don't think that that's always properly looked at in perspective. Um, I think in Jesus' time, when the apostles were given the Holy Spirit, and you know, even the shadow of the apostle would fall upon someone, and they would be healed. That certainly, they were going out with the power of Jesus and keeping the commandments. And when Jesus came in the Book of Mormon and was with the people, they had hundreds of years, it says, of the golden era, the Nephites, that they were righteous. Men were keeping the commandments of God. Did Zion come then? Did Zion come? And if, and then I thought about that. I thought, well, do we have a hope of doing any better than those two times? Mm-hmm. Number one, I don't think we ever will without Jesus being in our presence with us. Well, Jesus, that's the one thing in the golden age of the Nephites. Jesus had been in their presence, and I think that's the difference. Exactly, and in and Jesus was here when you know before Pentecost, when the disciples spent three years with him, and, and it says that Jesus, that well, God was with the people, walked with the city of Enoch. So I yeah. believe Jesus was with them then. Yeah, their ability to live like that and have all things common was as the result of Jesus being present. And people in our day and age have got that backwards. You know, they say, "Hey, we're supposed to have all things common," and of course, those people who ever tried those experiments don't talk to each other anymore, you know, but they think, you know, they, they get the cause and effect backwards. Right. You know, so that's why um, when we were talking about the nature of God and who he is, that um, number one, we see that differently than, um, than like you said, the house of Israel. That's one reason it's important to, I think to, to hold to the book of Mormon message is because of how, the house of Israel views God. 
and yeah. and probably why they also were so angry because Jesus claimed to be God. Yeah, that they need to understand that that was true. You know, I, I got to jump in on that point, and this <clears throat> has been a recent study of mine. And and like you said, we can talk about things freely here. You know, just like several men, their last words, Abinadi got killed for specifically saying uh, God himself would come down and take on flesh. That's what it says in Mosiah 9. Hey, we've deliberated three days, King Noah's people, and we have cause against you because you said God himself would take on flesh. And for this reason, you're going to be put to death. Um, that's the same in Mosiah 5 when the missionaries come back and they tell about this prophet who was killed. And they said, and because he said that God would take on the image of man, they killed him. Um, that's that chiasm I sent you the other day, by the way. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, he's not the only one. And what I want to share was in the New Testament. Um, I, I don't say this to try to pick away other people's reasons and arguments, but there, there's something we need to know. Uh, yes, for the reasons and arguments, let me finish that point, that there might be three gods or whatever. When Stephen dies, he was martyred in Acts chapter 7. Abinadi was martyred in uh, Mosiah chapter 9. But they both died for the same reason, and, and this is what it is. In Acts chapter 7, I'm just going to paraphrase it here. Jesus, uh, Stephen is preaching to the people, and they're getting mad at what he's saying. But then he says, and I see Jesus on the right hand of God. And, you know, they, they get so mad, they cover their ears. They don't want to hear it. And they, 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 it says they gnash on him with their teeth, and then they stone him. And, but his, his last words are, you know, God received my soul. This, this word before it, though, where he says, I see Jesus on the right hand of, of God in power, this is a Hebrewism. And so everyone who reads the English says, oh, well, God sees or Jesus. I'm sorry, Stephen sees Jesus and God together. He sees this vision of two personages. And it's like, it had nothing to do with, he wasn't like telling the people, I'm seeing this vision in heaven. I'm seeing Jesus right next to God. Being on the right hand of power is what got him killed because it means that Jesus had the full authority and power of God. That's what it meant to be on the right hand. You see, the other person who said these same words and got killed also was Jesus himself. Those were Jesus' words that he says before the Sanhedrin. He says, hey, the, the time is coming shortly where you're going to see the Son of Man on the right hand of God in power. I'm, I'm slightly paraphrasing that. But the point is, Stephen was simply quoting Jesus, and he was telling, hey, this person you killed was God himself. That's ultimately what he means. It's the same words that Abinadi is saying. Seeing him on the right hand of power did not was not a description of, hey, there's two personages and I see this Jesus, this person sitting on the right hand physically. On the right hand of power is an important Hebrew concept that comes throughout the Old Testament. And it's interesting that Moroni concludes in Moroni chapter 7, he says the same thing, literally. And and so critics say, ah, well, Joseph Smith was just plagiarizing the New Testament, because he writes almost the same words as Jesus uh, or Stephen on the right hand of power. And it's like, no, what it is, it, it's not that he was copying some, Joseph Smith was copying from the New Testament. The point is that the Old Testament clearly explains what the right hand of power means. Let me read Moroni. This is Moroni 928, some of his final words. May, uh, uh, oh, we're here, actually, let me start with 727. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, 
hath miracles ceased because Christ has ascended into heaven and hath sat down on the right hand of God to claim of the Father his rights and mercy of whom he hath uh, the children of men. Well, sitting on the right hand of God, it sounds like it's this description of, hey, there's two chairs and Jesus is in the right one. Moroni also says in 928, May the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. Remember what you pointed out, Mike, in this parable of the olive tree, how there's the master of the vineyard, then there's the servant. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, in the end of the story, there's just the, the master, Lord. right? And the Lord, yeah. That's what this is referring to. See, it's it's saying, hey, there's there's God the Father, and and then when He takes on flesh, that's who Jesus is. That's that's what got Abinadi killed for stating that. But in the end, it's just God. So it's saying, hey, there's God the Father, whose throne is in the high of heavens, and Jesus on the right hand, until all things shall become subject unto Him, until until He's the one who becomes with us. But it's not that it's it's not describing like two separate conscious beings. I'm, I'm convinced that that's not what the scriptures ever, ever implied, especially if we look at brother Jared's account where it's like, God is talking first person when he touches the stone with his finger. And he says, did you see more? And he says, no, show yourself. And then all of a sudden he sees his body standing in front of him and he says, Hey, I'm Jesus. You know, this person who was God speaking to him now says, you're looking at the body of my spirit. I'm Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so, but the point being, on the right hand of power was Jesus' words claiming, well, let me read it from the, from the New Testament. Jesus is killed by the Sanhedrin because he states these same words that Stephen says, the same thing Moroni is saying, which was ultimately what Abinadi says, which is saying Jesus was God himself. That's that's ultimately what it means. But you probably have some thoughts. I'm, I'm going to look up the scripture real quick. Well, I it's a lot of doctrine, but it has to go to why it's important to understand him that way. And one of them, I think, is the purpose of our day and the purpose of having this Book of Mormon and to bring it back to the covenant people is that it's going to be important how they see God from their culture and understand him. And if we don't understand that, it's hard to bring that message to them. But the second fold is also just understanding the nature of God. And we, we like to make him into the father and the son, um, as, as like we have fathers and son here in this earth. And, and we, you know, you hear those arguments like, well, how did the son, you know, why, how did he not, you know, he was praying to the father. So how could there not be, separate things. And um, my friend said the other day, unless you believe that God the Father came down and had sex with Mary and produced Jesus, we can't completely hold to the analogy of father and son between God the Father and Jesus the Son as we do to human father and son. Because we're the product, I'm the product of my mom and dad, and you're the product of your mom and dad. But Jesus was something different. And as much as we look at him as a man, we also realize that he was born not like any other person in this world was born. And so you can only hold to that image of father and son the way we want to make it like us here on earth so much because he wasn't, he, he wasn't born the way we were born. 
it was this miracle. And so there's something more than just a father-son relationship to him, and it's okay to go beyond that in our thinking. Um, but I have to believe that understanding God in that way somehow has to affect us on the inner man. It's not just a cognitive thing. Um, and that's there has to be a purpose of why it's written that way in the Book of Mormon. And I think it's twofold that it it brings us closer to him in maybe ways we don't understand right now, but also it allows us to bring the message to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe it's the clear message that whether us Gentiles get it or not, you know, you mentioned the house of Israel, um, those Jews who are coming to Christ, they already get this. They already understand this. And mm-hmm. uh, it's the Gentile confusion that gets mixed in. You know, we're not sure exactly when we read the Bible because it says, hey, certain parts were changed. We don't always know what was changed, but that's why I think it's so important we come back to the Book of Mormon for, for that clarity. Um, because this is one of the reasons why I think people, like you say, they vehemently argue this because they can point to certain scriptures that say one thing, and it's like, yeah, you can, but there are sometimes reasons why scriptures say the things they do. But come back to the Book of Mormon and you realize that every time Jesus was introduced to one of these writers, and you can use that word introduced because it was a new understanding to them. You know, us growing up in the church, Mike, I was thinking about this. You probably can't remember the first time you ever heard the name Jesus, right? I mean, as a little boy or something like that. You know, it's not like you can... You can pinpoint the day you first mm-hmm. heard of Jesus, but you can in the Book of Mormon when Nephi has his vision after his dad's vision, and he sees, he says God was born of Mary, right? And then they said God was judged of the earth, and later Nephi is told, and his name is Jesus. He, he can say that's the first time I heard the name Jesus. The angel tells him this. Jacob, his brother, says, oh, yeah, and in the last night, the angel declared unto me his name is Jesus as he's preaching. King Benjamin, when he's speaking to the people and says, hey, the time soon coming when the God, the creator of heaven and earth, will come down from heaven and live on earth in, in, in a tabernacle of clay, meaning a body like ours. And and then you get these, Alma has this revelation where you know he calls out to, and he tells in Alma 17 to his son, hey, I had heard my na- my dad mention this name Jesus, but I'd never had anything to do until I called out his name. And this whole reason I'm sharing this is because the first time these people share their experience about hearing about Jesus for the first time, they never introduce him as, oh, well, he was one of a three presidency or he was one of multiple gods. Every single time they share it, it's he was God. And he took on flesh, and no one explains that process more clearly than Abinadi does. Mm-hmm. But every single time they introduce their first understanding of Jesus, it's always as he was God, he was the creator. What are the when you look at the creation stories among like the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and and they have gods, you know, they have different gods and that make the universe run. The you know the gods of the sun and the moon and the, the rain and the destruction and and all of that we call folklore or ways of looking at to try to understand why we're here and who are, who, you know, why we exist and, and why things are the way they are. And we, we talked earlier about just looking at a leaf and on a tree and you think about photosynthesis and all of the scientific things that are going on around us and that there's this, the things that you see in space all the time with the expanding galaxies and just the immensity of how much 
area is out there and all of these things are happening, our minds, I mean, we think it's neat. We can't even comprehend mm -hmm. what we're even seeing. Exactly. So when you think about a creator like that, that has the power to uh, allow you to exist in, in a, an afterlife or an eternity, that's, that's pretty heavy to relate to a creator like that. Just like our, our forefathers and different cultures going back, you know, thousands of years before Christ had these odd, we look at them now as like odd ways of like thinking, you know, how, you know, Abraham's day and how could a little statue, you know, protect you and you take it with you. And it's this thing you worship to give you power or, or fertility or whatever. They didn't understand how to relate to their God. Mm. It was their own mind trying to figure out huh. how to make sense of things. Mm -hmm. But when you realize that Jesus isn't second fiddle, but that when he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. Yeah. He, in such a personal way, has showed us how to relate to our creator and has said, I am your creator. Exactly. And I've come down here and I've atoned for everything bad you're going to do. If you will just allow me and my spirit to change your heart back into a heart that's for me and not mm -hmm. for your fleshly world that you live in that's fallen, then that's what you need to know about me. And I have given you everything you need to know about your creator, even though it's He's so amazing beyond our understanding. I've come down to relate to you as as Jesus, mm. and I and I think that's part of understanding the quote Godhead. I hate that. That's part of understanding our Creator is relating to Him as Jesus and not as a second fiddle and not quite knowing what to do with Him. Amen. Do I pray to Him? Do I pray to the Father? Do Amen. I pray to the Amen. in His name? Do I? Yeah, you know the Nephites got it right. When he comes to them, it says they bowed down and kissed his feet and called him their Lord and their God. They understood because they understood this whole Mosaic law pointed towards this one who would come. And it's interesting when the plates of ether are brought to King Benjamin and he has this gift of translation. You know, ether's plates carry brother of Jared's story. And it came with commandment, though, that the word was not supposed to come forth to the people until after Jesus um, showed himself as the resurrected Jesus to them. And I think that's interesting because there was the most, I think the most important thing we get from Ether, now I shouldn't say that because there's so many interesting things given only there, but was the brother of Jared's experience where he's like, no, this Jesus who's coming is God in the flesh. It's so clearly laid out there. But he's like, I don't want people to understand that till after. Uh, and, 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 and yet they did understand, but it wasn't like publicly announced. So the record, that part of the record, that's why it's in the end of the Book of Mormon too. It's because Moroni includes it and it wasn't made known to the people in, in like Alma's day. It wasn't translated for their benefit. And but yet they understood that too. I'm just saying his record was commanded mm. to be held back. And, and the same is true when Jesus is with the disciples. He says, well, who do you say that I am? You know, who do other people say that I am? Well, you might be the Elias, you might be this. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He isn't meaning biological son. He's meaning you are the fleshly, physical, walking entity of God on this earth. That's what they were saying. And he said, the Holy Ghost bears witness of that to you. No human can do that. But he says, see that you don't tell anyone that until after I'm resurrected. In other words, for some reason, he kept it back. When Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, I'm going to read. This is from, from the King James. It's, it's Matthew 26. The high priest arises after they're quizzing Jesus, and 
you know, he says, hey, this guy said he uh, was going to rebuild the temple after it's destroyed in three days. The high priest arises and says, don't you have anything to say about this, what all these people are saying? And it's like he doesn't answer their silly questions about, you said this temple was going to rise again, you know? And it's like he lets them have their, their say. And it says, but Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Could, could not say it any more clearly if we understand that Son of God simply means God who took on flesh. That's what they understood it to mean. That's what Abinadi de- defines it as. And so Jesus' response, this is uh, Matthew twenty six sixty four. Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said, he said, you're the one who said it, I'm the Son of God. He said, nevertheless, I say unto you. Now, see, this is Jesus' final answer. He answered none of these questions until now. And he says this, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. In other words, the sitting on the right hand of power, that was the Hebrewism for meaning he had the full authority of God because he was God. And he said, you know, these, it wasn't that they were going to have this vision. He's saying, I'm the God who's, who's coming to earth. And then you know what they do? The high priest, 65, then the high priest rent his clothes. He tears his clothes open and he says, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? You see, and the, they were even violating the Mosaic law there because in the Mosaic law, you needed three people to witness that someone had committed like murder for them to be put to death. You couldn't just put someone to death without three witnesses. And now he's saying, we don't need any witnesses. You just heard what he said. No one else has to say this. And that's what, that's what happens is they put him to death. He says, what you th- think ye? And they answered and they said, he is guilty of death. For the same thing Abinadi said, God himself would come down among the children of men. And this is what Stephen's quoting that gets him killed. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you think of what, if you knew this was going to be your last words and they were going to kill you anyhow, what's restricting you from speaking the truth, right? You know, in the end, but they all say the same thing. And this is the point. And this is what, you know, Mike, I, I don't have to tell you, but this grates me about the restoration is that we're a lot like these people gathering around Stephen, want to covering our ears and don't want to hear this because we think we know. And it's like, yeah, we might think we know, but at the same time, it's like, but just read what the Book of Mormon was given. We're the, we're the few people who have this word right now. And like we're supposed to hold up this truth. We weren't just supposed to hold ourselves up as the restored church. We're supposed to hold this truth up. And it's like, no, we'd rather argue and put our hands over our ears and crucify the classroom teachers who might want to share this. And that'll be their last cl- class too, you know? Yeah, well, that's... Uh... That same spirit that wanted to kill Christ, that wanted to kill Amenadi, is alive with us today that wants to spiritually kill each other and just lash out at each other whenever we try to discuss one of the most important message, as you have said, and as I have said, and, and is the and really the message of hope. When you when you think about the the homeless and the, the down and out and the downtrodden and and you know, I hear these terms like community outreach and we, you know, we want to be good neighbors and reach out to our community. I, I kind of cringe somewhat because I know the church I come from, and we don't have the resources or the teams or the ongoing full-time ministry that needs to take place to do those kind of things. And there's so many organizations out there, you know, like harvesters and places that provide food. And I think that, that there's very few people that have been given this message in the last days to take to the world. And... 
and even if we reach out to people and and try to build relationship and things, when it comes to preaching the gospel, we are we're cut off at the knees because we can't preach the gospel because we don't agree on the gospel. And if you can get people to come into our churches, and st- what are we going to do for them when we until until it comes time from that sermon and we're just floundering around because no one knows how to preach. Not no one, but very rare. You know, rarely do we hear the pure gospel preached in power. And so, what's it all good for? We're we're here to bring this message of who God is to the world, and and at least to the covenant people, so they can take it to the world where we've failed. Uh, I just, I we have to feel at some point we have a stewardship over over that. Yeah. And um, and I'm thinking, you know, if I'm talking to someone about let's say you're talking to someone who doesn't have a home or, or, or just has had a rough life and, and you're sitting there, what message are you going to give them? I can give you food for today and give you five bucks. Or I can tell you that I can't fix where you're at right now. I can't fix your problems, but I can tell you about the hope that I have and that one day this won't be this way. Yeah. And the hope is that you were created by, by a being that not only created you, but came down here and lived as you are to understand your plight and your problems. Mm. And he is also the God of the heavens and the earth mm. and that he has one, one goal in this world and that's to bring you back to him. And so, you know, start today opening up to him. He, he can take you where I can't, but I can only invite you to know about him. But, but I've got to know about him first to share him like that. I, I don't want to start out with a city of... <laughs> Well, there's going to be a city here one day, and it's going to be called Zion, and you know we're going to have all live together. I mean, that's and I can prove to you this church is restored. It's like all those. That's things. way down the line. Yeah. I, I want to. I want to be able to know who my Creator is and share that Creator with you, because that's the only thing that matters, and that's where our hope should be, really. Yeah. So, I I think it's. Uh, I, I'm sad that. Um, Going into those arenas and things in our local congregations sometimes are taboo because we've had bad experiences in the past. Um, and so what do you do? Well, I guess you seek him out on your own and through the word because you're not always free to do those things in, in uh, corporate worship due to uh, our history, our, our baggage, I think, yeah. our, our divisiveness over the years. At, at any expense, we want to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So, But there is a solution. You can have a podcast and, and you can talk about <laughs> no, things no. freely. <laughs> you can talk about them freely, but, I mean, it's we can't. People are, we can choose to believe the plain gospel, I guess, and, and just continue to uplift it in our arms. And, yeah, I, I think talking about, uh, these things, this is a great avenue to talk about things that you can't know their areas, I guess. So, well, And in the end, it's like, you know, I, I am hopeful. I, I've seen so many just signs of people, especially the, the rising generation who's hungry for the truth. You know, they want to they wanna know what the truth is and not so much just hear the traditional things that have been taught. Do you think that we keep looking down the road? I, I don't know what people's hope is or expectation somehow the all the whole church will come together i don't know maybe get a new prophet or a new hierarchy and we'll get things right i just i just don't think that's ever going to happen and my hope is <laughs> my, my hope really is just to know jesus and and try to be a better version of myself to other people but 
be able to share the story with others. I don't know what else hope there is right now. I get yeah. asked that a lot yeah. in discussion. Well, where's our hope then if it's not, you know, getting the church back it's, together? It's, I think it's like forgetting that notion. Number one is the first step in having hope. Amen. And just reading the gospel and Amen. allowing it to uh, bear fruit that it was intended to bear, but not it, to cover up the inconvenient part of it. Exactly. Exactly. I think you're exactly right. And when we come back to this message of the Book of Mormon, we realize that it's got the answers that we've been looking yeah. for. And and that's, I think, where the, the eternal life conversation always comes in, because I don't think anything makes Jesus look more like second fiddle than talking about a moon glory yeah, in eternity where you can be with him, but not the Father. Right. It's like, who do you yeah. think he is? Yeah. He's like... Exactly. So you see how these little these little lies and deceptions have crept in to take us away from the very uh, nature of God. But exactly. So one by one, we hope that uh, all of you who are listening will just seek God and seek His truth, and just know that uh, someday He's going to set things right, and we are all going to know the truth and see eye to eye. And in that day, we will have known that we have walked each other home. <laughs> Remember, we started today. We were going to talk about. The New Jerusalem oh, and yeah, Zion, yeah. as, as uh, mentioned in the <laughs> Book of Mormon, and see what the timeline was. And uh, we didn't get there yet. We didn't get close to that. Yeah, well, next maybe. time. <laughs> maybe next time. Thanks, Mike.